We'll now ask Mr. Watkins to address us on Jesus Christ destroyed the devil. Ladies and gentlemen, let me say right away that I recognize that the subject of the devil is a difficult subject. There's been a lot of controversy about it. People feel strongly one way or another about this subject. But don't be alarmed, I'm not going to plunge right away into the controversial aspects of the subject. What I propose to do, first of all, is to mention some points in which I think we will all be agreed. We'll consider those first, and then we'll move on gently to the more controversial areas and see whether we can find agreement in those as well. So let's ask the question, what do we agree concerning the devil? Well, the very first thing that we are agreed upon, I'm fairly confident, is that the Bible is the authority. It's the word of God and it speaks with absolute authority. So what the Bible says is what matters. But what does it say? Well, we agree, surely, that the Bible represents the devil as the great enemy of God, as the great tempter of man, it says that the devil is exceedingly deceitful. And just another one point, it may be you haven't thought of this one before, but when I mention it, I'm sure you'll agree about this one too. That is that the devil is a destroyer of human life. Now perhaps you'd like to clinch that last point right away. I'm going to turn to my first passage of scripture, but before I turn to it, I don't want to embarrass anybody who hasn't got the facility of flicking up passages very quickly. I promise you I'll read faithfully. In any case, you can make a note of the passage and check up, but if you would like to come along with me, the passage is Hebrews, Chapter 2 and verse 14. It reads like this. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. So the devil is described as him that had the power of death. And that was why I said that the devil is a destroyer of human life. The points of agreement again, then. The devil is the great enemy of God, is the great tempter of man, is exceedingly deceitful, and is a destroyer of human life. All right, we start there, and I think we are agreed, and now we'll move on. And I want us, first of all, to look at the very first mention of the word devil, the scripture where it's for the very first time mentioned in the scriptures. And it may surprise some of you to know that this is the chapter that was read by our president a few moments ago, Matthew chapter 4. It's the account of the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness. Now let's see what we can learn from this. The narrative is fresh in our minds. What can we learn about the devil? Well, when we read through it fairly quickly, 
I think that the impression that we would probably get is that the devil is a person. Because we read here of a dialogue, the devil makes certain propositions to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that these things would be to his advantage. The Lord Jesus rejects the propositions that the devil makes, and then we are told that the devil departs. And, on a quick reading, it does sound as if the devil is a person. But when we read it again, and read it more carefully, I think we'll see that there are some difficulties. For example, in each of the accounts of the Lord's temptation in the wilderness by the devil, Yes, we are told that it took place in the wilderness. And yet one of the items of temptation was that the Lord was taken to the pinnacle of the temple. I don't need to tell you that the temple was not in the wilderness, but in Jerusalem. Just one little difficulty. Another one. We are told, you read, that the devil taketh Jesus up to an exceedingly high mountain from which he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. There is not, nor has there ever been, in a wilderness or outside of it, a mountain so exceedingly high that from it can be seen all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I remember making this point to a certain person on one occasion. And he replied in rather a scholarly way, Ah, yes, but you forget that when you read about the world in, in the New Testament, it means the Roman world. Very well, I said, Is there, has there ever been a mountain from which the whole of the Roman world can be seen in a moment of time? He couldn't answer that one. Well, now, there are two questions. Questions, problems, relating to circumstance. But there are other problems which to me are of a more serious nature when we take this narrative literally. Think again of the temptation where the Lord Jesus was taken to the pinnacle of the temple. Never mind about the circumstantial problem now. What sort of mental picture do you have of that occasion? Now, one thing that really impresses me from a reading of the New Testament is that the Lord Jesus could recognize a difficult situation, a long way up. He could see the possibility of temptation a mile away, so to speak. The trouble with us is it's going to come right up against us before we see it, and then it's too late. Well now, since the Lord Jesus Christ was like this, since he had this quick understanding, can we, do we, seriously imagine him going along Think of the devil for the moment as a person. Do we have a mental picture of the devil beckoning the Lord Jesus? And so he leads the way. Lord Jesus follows. So they move on right to Jerusalem. They come to the temple. The devil climbs up. The Lord Jesus Christ follows him right up to the highest point. And then at that point, he says, no, I won't do it. Is that the sort of mental picture that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved righteousness and hated iniquity? Frankly, I can't see it like that. But it's just something for you to think about.
I don't want to force the issue at all. Take another of the temptations. We read that the devil said to the Lord Jesus Christ, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship me. Now imagine, if you will, that some person make him as powerful, as impressive as you like. Imagine that a person came to you and said to you, bow down and worship me and I'll give you the whole world. What would your reaction be? I suspect that I'd just laugh in his face. Why? Because I would know perfectly well that he was not in a position to fulfill that sort of promise. And if that would be my reaction, and if that would be your reaction, how much more would it be the reaction of the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew so well that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So you can see there are really substantial problems if we take the account of the temptation literally and think of the devil as a person. You may say, yes, Mr. Speaker, that's all very well. But it is written that these things were so and these things happened. Fair enough. But it may be that there's another way of understanding them which removes these difficulties. Let's keep that in our mind. It may be that there's another way of understanding these things which removes the difficulties instantly. All right, we move on. The Lord Jesus resisted the devil, however we are to understand it. He resisted the devil in the wilderness. He destroyed the devil at Calvary. What is that? Yes, he destroyed the devil at Calvary. Evidence? Well, we've been there already. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Let me read the words again. The language is rather ponderous, I suppose. But let's try and get the meaning. Verse 14 of Hebrews 2 reads like this. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is, the devil. Now let's try to understand the meaning of those words. They speak about the children. And if we look at the verses immediately before, we will see that these children are the people whom the Lord Jesus Christ has come to save. And with regard to them, it says, they are partakers of flesh and blood. In other words, the people whom the Lord Jesus has come to save are flesh and blood creatures. Yes, we know that to be true, don't we? But this passage tells us that because of this, for as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took 
part of the same. They were flesh and blood creatures, and he was a flesh and blood creature. But why? So that through death, stop there, he was a flesh and blood creature that he might die. The people whom he has come to save, flesh and blood creatures, he was a flesh and blood creature that he might die. To what end? For what purpose? That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. So that the plain teaching of this scripture is that the Lord Jesus Christ came in our weak human nature in order to die, in order that by his death he might destroy the devil. Now imagine that the devil is a monster, great, exceedingly powerful person. Do we seriously suppose that the Lord would destroy such a powerful person by coming in weak human nature and dying upon a cross? It just doesn't make sense, does it? If the devil were great and powerful, then we would think that the Lord Jesus would come with greater power to destroy him. But here we are told that he comes in weak human nature and dies. That is the way in which he destroys the devil. It would seem then as if there's an urgent need for us to review this question and straighten out our thinking concerning who or what the devil is. We saw that there were problems regarding the temptation in the wilderness. Here are more problems. Yes, it may be that these things must be understood in some other way. All right, we leave that for the moment. We just keep this as a problem that's to be resolved. The question of the temptation is one. The question of the apparent death of the devil by the dying on the cross is another. Now, we leave this, and I want to turn to the epistle to the Romans. I want to read some passages from Romans, and it may not be immediately apparent to you why I'm reading these passages. Then again, it might dawn on you. So, let me just read a few passages, and then we can draw our conclusions afterwards. The epistle of Paul to the Romans, and I'm going to start reading in chapter 3, and verse 10 begins with a quotation from the Old Testament, rather typical of Paul, really. As it is written, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What a ghastly picture! What a hideous description. 
who are these people that the Apostle Paul is speaking about? And what's wrong with them? Who are these people? Well, I started reading from verse 10. If I started with verse 9, we would have had the answer. Let's read verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Who are these people? Jews and Gentiles. Everybody. This is a description of people. This is how God sees people. This is the hideousness, the ugliness of human behavior as God sees it. And the cause, they are all under sin. All right, that's the first passage from Romans. Now I'm going to move on. Just turn over a page or two. And I'm looking now at chapter 5. And verse 12. I'm not going to read the whole sentence. I'd have to read most of the chapter to do that. But I'm just going to read verse 12. Pick up the message of this. Wherefore, as by one man... Sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Can you see that there's a connection there between sin and death? Sin, the cause, death, the effect. Another passage which says the same thing. Verse 23 of the next chapter, chapter 6. Well-known words, these. But I'm quoting them because there is a link between sin and death here. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just another one passage from Romans. Verse 11 of the next chapter. Chapter 7, verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Now those are the passages that I wanted to read from Romans. I wonder whether anything has dawned on you. The point I want to make is that we began agreeing, I think, concerning certain facts about the devil. The devil, we said, was the great enemy of God, the great tempter of man, exceedingly deceitful, and a destroyer of human life, a cause of death. Well, now, haven't you seen that exactly the same things are said concerning sin in this epistle to the Romans? Sin is the cause of all the trouble in that third chapter of Romans that we read about. They're all under sin, and so they become hostile to God. Man is tempted and destroyed by sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin deceived me. We read in this 11th verse, and slew me. 
Yes, by one man's disobedience. Sin entered into the world and death by sin. So the facts concerning the devil are the facts concerning sin. So I'm asking you to consider the proposition that the devil of the Bible is sin. Is there any evidence to support this proposition? Plenty. So much that I could occupy the rest of the evening just supplying the evidence. We're going to move quickly, though, but let's just have a look at one or two samples. The prophet Jeremiah, chapter 17 and verse 9. Here we read something concerning the human heart, the sin-stricken heart of man. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I'd like the thought of that verse, really to sink in. The heart is deceitful above all things. So that if there is a personal devil, a monster, it's not so deceitful as the sin-stricken human heart. That's deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. It's so deceitful that it doesn't recognize that it's desperately wicked. Who can know it, asks the prophet? then the resounding statement that God knows it, he's come to terms with it, though man hasn't. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. Since we are in Jeremiah, we'll just turn back to the book immediately before it, Isaiah. Chapter 45. It's interesting to note that these words are addressed to Cyrus. Look at the first verse. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. And who was Cyrus? He was the great king of Persia. Persia was the country which, more than any other, the nation that more than any other, taught the world that there was a personal devil. The belief in and the worship of a devil was mixed up with all the ancient nations of the world pretty well, but the nation that really put the devil on the map, so to speak, was Persia. And they had a religion which supposed that there were two great gods, a god of good and a god of evil. There they were all the time playing tug-of-war with each other at the expense of the human race. As I say, one was the god of good, the other the god of evil. The one was the god of light, the other the god of darkness. Well, now here is a message from God through the prophet Isaiah to the king of the people who believed this. See what he says. Verse 5. I am the Lord... And there is none else, no rival, as the Persians supposed. 
there is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. Now see how he continues. I form the light and create darkness. Not a God of light and a God of darkness. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. Now don't let us be upset by that word evil there. Evil very often in scripture means trouble. Trouble which God brings upon men who are rebellious to his will. God claims that he makes peace and in this sense creates evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now these words amount to a categorical denial that there is a personal devil of the kind that so many people believe in. It is the sinful desires, the ungodly desires of the human heart. Let's go to the New Testament quickly. Just following up this thought again, I want now to refer to the epistle of James. James chapter 1. This is a very interesting passage indeed, a very helpful passage, because it tells us just what happens when a person is tempted. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But, but what? But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now that's very interesting and very revealing. Imagine for the sake of argument that there was an outside tempter. This would be the very place where it should be said. The question concerns an outside tempter. There were those who imagined that God was inducing them to sin. And they were blaming God for it. And James repudiates this idea. But if it were somebody else outside, then here he would say it, surely. But see how he turns it right into man himself. It says that what really happens is that man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It reminds me of the words of the Lord Jesus. You remember how fussy the Pharisees were concerning externals and how they were carping and critical because the disciples washed, the disciples ate with unwashed hands. And he said, defilement doesn't really come from outside. It comes from inside. It comes from the human heart. So he says that out of the heart come evil thoughts, fornications, adulteries, murders. And he gives a whole catalogue of things that are abominable to God. And he says they come out of the human heart. While we're in James, we'll turn over a page or two to chapter 4. 
because the devil is mentioned here. And some might imagine that this contradicts what we've already said. Verse 7. The second half of the verse reads, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, why does James say this here, and what does he mean? It's always a good rule when trying to understand Scripture to get it in its context. So let's try and get this in its context, shall we? James here is speaking about human lusts or desires. The word lust means simply desire. And the beginning of this fourth chapter, he says, he asks, from whence come wars and fightings among you? He answers his own question, come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. See how that word is repeated, lust. He goes on. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now, what James is doing here, he's taking all these human lusts, he's putting them in one big parcel, so to speak, and he's calling it the world, which makes good sense and accords with other scripture, because you may record that in John's epistle we read that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So here James has been talking about the trouble that must cause, he's putting them all together, and he's calling them the world, and then he goes on to say, and I'm moving now on to the seventh verse, he says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, can't you see that in that context, the devil is bound to mean the world or human lust, these ungodly desires. It's as though there are two poles. On the one hand, it's God trying to draw people. On the other hand, these human lusts are drawing them. It's kind of a conflict between the two. You may say, I don't agree. I don't agree. All right, we'll just read on, shall we? We'll read verse 7 again. And then on to verse 8. This really clinches it. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now in verse 8, corresponding to submit yourselves to God, are the words, draw nigh to God. He will draw nigh to you. And then corresponding to the word, resist the devil and he will flee from you, are the words, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your heart, ye double-minded. So there we have the meaning of the devil. It is these human lusts that draw people away from God. Well now, let's get back to our earlier problem. If the devil is to be understood in this way, these lusts that 
draw people away from God. This kind of sin tendency in man. Then, it would seem that the devil that tempted the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness was these human desires that oppose the will of God. Now this is where people start bristling. And bristling is the word. You can almost see their huckles rising. They don't like the thought at all. What the Lord Jesus Christ tempted in this kind of way by human desires, they just don't like it at all. Well now let's come to terms with the plain teaching of Scripture. I can understand their hostility, their antipathy to this thought. They think we are dishonoring the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not, as I'll show in a minute. But first of all, let's look at some plain Scripture teaching concerning the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is the authority, isn't it? This is our standard of appeal. Are we perfectly agreed that it's the teaching of the Bible that's going to win the day in our hearts? All right, then. I've already quoted this passage twice. I'm going there again. This time to see what the teaching of the Bible is concerning the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 once again. By the time I finish, you'll probably know this verse by heart. Well, that won't be a bad thing either. Anyway, let me read it again. Because now of its teaching concerning the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Does the message come over loud and clear? For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He was a flesh and blood creature like those whom he came to save. Now have you noticed that there are three words in that sentence there, just for emphasis, it could have read, and the message would have been a valid one if it had read like this. For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he took part of the same. But for emphasis, it says, he also took part of the same. He also himself took part of the same. He also himself likewise took part of the same. So the writer to the Hebrews is at pain to tell us that the Lord Jesus had the same nature as we. Do we accept the testimony or do we reject it? I'm looking now at two verses further on in the same chapter. Verse 17. Wherefore in all things, and I've underlined in all things in my Bible, because I think it means in all things, Wherefore, in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest 
Now, chapter 4 of Romans, verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. There's a double negative there, but I'll read it again. You'll get the meaning. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That's the sense. But let me read on. But he was in all points tempted like us we are, yet without sin. No, my friends, we are not dishonoring the Lord Jesus Christ when we say that he had the same nature as ourselves and that he could be tempted as we are. We are not dishonoring the Lord Jesus. We are honoring him the more because we say that although he had a nature like our nature, a nature that causes us to fall and to fail so often, although he had just the same kind of nature, he never once yielded to the impulses to sin. Yes, that is really honoring him. And make, let there be no mistake about it, the temptation was real. It wasn't so much play-acting as it would have been if he had a nature that was proof against temptation. The temptation was real. He was 40 days without food. Did he need anyone to come and whisper in his ear that he was hungry? The pangs of hunger must have been intense. Bear in mind that Immediately before the Lord was in the wilderness, he had been baptized in Jordan. Heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit came upon him and a voice rang forth and said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Then straight to the wilderness. So he had these new and wonderful powers. The power of the Holy Spirit. And he had never tried this power. A wonderful power when misused. It's a dangerous power. So he had this power. And that voice would still be ringing in his ears. This is my son. And then he was deprived of food. For 40 days. The pangs of hunger were intense. And the thought would come. If you are indeed the Son of God, why not use these great powers to provide food and gratify your appetite? I reverently, I would suggest that the Lord's thoughts could have gone like this. I would imagine, first of all, that if we had been in that situation, then we would have seized the opportunity to use the powers and gratify our animal appetite, just like that. Well, the Lord Jesus wasn't as weak and as foolish as we are, but still I could imagine, and I say this reverently, and I don't mind if you reject the thought, but I could imagine that this kind of thinking could be there. I have come 
to do the will of my Father. If I am to do the will of my Father, I must live. If I am to live, I must eat. But I have no food. But I have the power to create food. So why not use this power to create food to live, to do the will of God? Yes, it would have been easy to think like that. But the Lord Jesus recognized that it was wrong thinking. And he resisted it. Think of the temptation to go to the pinnacle of the temple and cast himself down. We saw that there were problems as to how he could be in the wilderness and on the pinnacle of the temple at the same time. But he could be physically in the wilderness and his thoughts could go to the pinnacle of the temple. And the thought could have been that if he began his ministry with an impressive display of divine power, not just for any cheap reason, but to get people's interest focused on him, then it would ensure the success of his mission for God. Yes, it would be easy to think that way. Lots of people think in that sort of way, but it would have been wrong and he resisted. Think again of the temptation to, dare I say it, to bow down to self and to seize at once, there and then, that which ultimately it was God's purpose to give him. Ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the world for thy possession. It was his due, it was his destiny. But there had to be preaching, cruel misunderstanding, the shame and the pain of the cross first, then the crown afterwards. But what a temptation to short-circuit all this and to seize it at once. But he recognized it would be wrong and he resisted. Yes, he resisted these natural impulses. And these situations which we see in the wilderness were recurring like situations during his ministry again and again in one way and another. These temptations would present themselves. But having hammered it all out in the wilderness, he would be stronger to meet it in more subtle guise on other occasions. But the struggle would still be there, still be there. It would be a relentless sort of struggle, an endless struggle. And so something more drastic was necessary. The nature that could be tempted had to be taken right out of the way. And so, in terms of Hebrews 2.14, can we quote it? For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. The thing that was now necessary was the destruction of the very nature that could be tempted. And thus death destroys the devil. Or in the language later on of the same epistle to Hebrews, he put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. And so, the relentless struggle was over. The nature that he inherited from Adam was put to death. And God, recognizing the perfection of his character, raised him from the dead and gave him a new nature that could not be tempted, an immortal nature. Thus it was with the Lord Jesus himself. Now there's a great danger when discussing a subject of this kind to look at it academically. And there's a lot more that I could say. I nearly said, but I recognized as I was about to say it that it would be inappropriate. There's a lot more that I feel tempted to say. But anyway, let's see what the personal implications of this are. Somebody might say, well, if the devil represents these sinful human desires, why is it represented in this way? Why not use the word sin or human desires? Why speak of a devil at all? Well, you will know that in the scriptures, there are parables, many parables. Some of them are parable in a word, like salt, light. Some of them are parable in a paragraph. And some of them recurring, sustained, elaborate parables that run right through the New Testament. And this is one of them. And it's helpful. Because it enables us to see clearly the horror of human desires that oppose the will of God. We can look at it objectively. We can see it like a hideous monster. We recoil from it. And then the awful thought comes to us. That's what I'm like. That is a description of the human nature that I have inherited. And so we see the dark reality of our own wretchedness. And isn't it better to see it than to live in a fool's paradise? So we see it. We recognize the wretchedness of our human nature because of sin. And what do we do about it? The Lord Jesus has shown us what to do about it. The answer is death. Romans chapter 6. What, says Paul, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul has just shown, you read of it in the previous chapter, that where sin abounds, the grace of God superabounds. And there were some wicked people who were capable of trading upon the grace of God and saying, since sin means grace, if we sin more, more grace. Paul utterly repudiates this philosophy. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And so Paul, speaking to his Christian friends, says to them, We are dead to sin. What does he mean? He explains. Don't you know, he says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? So he's telling us that by the act of baptism we identify ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death. The Lord Jesus Christ destroyed the devil in his death. By baptism we identify ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and we do the same. But the word devil isn't used in Romans. He speaks about sin. Let's read on. Therefore, he says, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, down into the baptismal water and up again. Death, newness of life, a kind of a spiritual resurrection. Leading on, verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Here we get right to the crux of the matter. Knowing this, that our old man, shall we say our Adamic nature, let me begin again. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. See how it's spelt out. See how it links us with the cross of Christ. He didn't die instead of us. We must go along and die with him. Our old man, our Adamic nature is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. So by the act of baptism, we go along with the Lord Jesus Christ in the crucifixion of sin and in a newness of life. We rise from the waters of baptism. Death to sin. A new life. And the ultimate of it is Immortality with the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back to the earth. A prospect that is wonderful beyond anything that we can understand. This is the promise of God. In a word, in the words of if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. 